This is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm Margot Patterson. Despite months of mass protests in Israel, this week, on July 24th, the Israeli parliament passed a law curbing the independence of the Supreme Court. Our program today will focus on that. First, though, other news about Israel and Palestine. Escorted by Israeli soldiers, Jewish settlers broke into Palestinian homes in the villages of Tuba and El Abid on Tuesday, July 25th. At least one of the settlers was armed, according to an article in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. Other settlers broke into storage closets and stole equipment, the Palestinian homeowners said. The home invasions in the southern Hebron Hills were recorded. In one of the videos, settlers order a Palestinian woman to open a storage closet in her home. Another shows the settler searching the closet and a soldier filming it. In El Abid, a settler was recorded entering a home as a soldier stands by the door. Israeli activists attempted to call the police at least three times throughout the raid, but they never arrived. On July 15th, Basil Adra, a reporter for the online magazine 972, was detained by the Israeli army while covering a settler attack on Mufahara, a village in Masafir Yatta in the occupied West Bank. Although he identified himself as a journalist, Israeli soldiers handcuffed and blindfolded him and sat him on a chair in the blazing sun for hours after he refused to reveal the footage of the events captured on his phone. The Union of Journalists in Israel called Basil's detention appalling and a serious violation of freedom of the press. Masafir Yatta is a collection of a dozen rural Palestinian villages in the South Hebron Hills in Area C of the West Bank, part of which the IDF declared a firing zone in the 1980s. After a two-decade-long legal battle, the Israeli Supreme Court ruled in May of last year that the IDF has the authority to evict the 1,000 Palestinians in the eight villages within the firing zone. Speaking to a gathering of progressives July 15th, Representative Pramila Jayapald called Israel a racist state. Outcry over that remark within Congress led her to clarify that she does not believe the idea of Israel as a nation is racist, even though there are extreme racists in Israel's current government, she said, enacting outright racist policies. In response to Jayapal's remark, the House of Representatives passed by an overwhelming margin a resolution saying Israel is not a racist or apartheid state, though studies by Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the UN, and other human rights groups have concluded otherwise. In a recent memorandum of understanding signed with the American government, the Israeli government agreed to allow Palestinian Americans to use Ben-Gurion International Airport in Tel Aviv as part of its efforts to join the visa waiver program, which would allow for visa-free travel for Israelis to the United States. The condition of entry into the visa waiver program is that partner countries do not discriminate against American citizens on the basis of nationality. Many Palestinian Americans have been required in the past to use the Allenby Bridge, also known as the King Hussein Bridge, to enter and exit the West Bank. Palestinian Americans living in the West Bank will still be required to apply for entry to Israel through the coordinator of government activities in the territories, the Israeli military authority that governs the West Bank. The new terms will not be extended to the approximately 700 Americans currently living in the Gaza Strip. The signing of this MOU indicates that the U.S. will likely grant Israel entry into the visa waiver program. Formed in 2006, Combatants for Peace is composed of former Israeli and Palestinian fighters working to end the occupation 
Its sister organization, American Friends of Combatants for Peace, is presenting a series of talks this summer. The first was held Tuesday, July 25th, the day after the Israeli parliament approved a controversial law to reduce the independence of the judiciary. Not surprisingly, the discussion focused on the significance of this law and what it means for both Israelis and Palestinians. The speakers were Mickey Gitson, speaking from Israel, where he is director of the New Israel Fund, an NGO that seeks to advance liberal democracy in Israel, including free speech and minority rights, and Naveen Saduka. She is regional chief of staff for the Alliance for Middle East Peace and executive director of a new NGO in Jerusalem called Our Rights. The moderator was Gili Getz, an Israeli-American artist and activist and board president of American Friends of Combatants for Peace. The discussion brought home the immediacy of the concerns and the different but real dangers that the law spells for Palestinians and Israelis. Here is Gili Getz speaking. I'd just like to ground us in this moment for one second. These are extremely difficult times uh, in Israel-Palestine. Uh, we are watching with great alarm uh, developments on the ground. This week, the Israeli government, composed of criminals, Jewish supremacists, and theocrats, has moved one step closer to establishing authoritarian rule by weakening the uh, only substantive power on the Israeli government, uh, the high court. Despite mass historic and truly inspiring protests of uh, Israeli Jews on, on the streets uh, of Israel for almost six months, warnings from uh, leading security and economic experts that such move will harm the country, the government voted uh, to limit the high court's ability to challenge the government in decisions by its ministers, opening the door to mass systemic corruption in one step closer to firing the attorney general and replace him, her with a yes person that can end Bibi's ongoing corruption trial. Bibi is the nickname of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And uh, advance the government's plan to establish authoritarian rule. Of course, authoritarian rule already exists for Palestinians living under the brutality of the Israeli occupation. Uh, we watching the very same Jewish supremacist leaders pushing for eliminating the courts are also accelerating a violent annexation process and uh, deepening the occupation and apartheid systems by massively expanding illegal settlements, systemic land theft, and building illegal outposts, advancing mass expulsions uh, like in Masafriata and home demolitions all over Area C of the West Bank, while also applying state and settler violence and harassment with impunity, including uh, pogroms. We also see increase in evictions of Palestinians from their homes by settler organizations using uh, racist laws, uh, example of East Jerusalem, in neighborhoods like Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan. Uh, we see uh, increase in military uh, invasions. The system of Jewish supremacy under occupation and apartheid has produced, cultivated, and developed the very politics and political leaders now robbing Israelis of their freedom and destroying the Israeli democratic structures, making even clearer the profound truth that there is no such thing as democracy with occupation. We have with us today two uh, extraordinary human rights leaders to help us make sense of this moment, uh, its challenges, its opportunities, and give us some insight into the 
partnership of solidarity between Israelis and Palestinians fighting for human rights, equality, and uh, democracies. Naveen, I can uh, start with you. Maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, where this moment finds you. Thank you for having me here today. It feels very dangerous and very scary these days. I think for me as a Palestinian, and this is, I share it, I think, with most of the other Palestinians and colleagues that I talk to, we actually feel very scared because we know that it is first and foremost the Palestinians who will be paying the price for having this government in place and these laws in place as well. And you mentioned everything that, doesn't, that has been happening so far. But if you also look at the number of casualties, we're talking about 156 Palestinians killed already since the beginning of this year, compared to 2022 when we only, not only, of course, it's also a number of casualties, but throughout the whole year, it was 204 casualties. So we see an increased number of deaths. And there's definitely also a killing without even going to a court system. There's increased evictions, and we are witnessing one right now in the old city of Jerusalem, like uh, the family of uh, Sublaban. And even though there has been many demonstrations and peaceful protests against it, nobody is listening and nobody is doing anything about it. If you look at what happened in Huwara and in Turmusaya, with more and more settlers actually attacking Palestinian villages in the West Bank, the thing is for us as Palestinians is that we have been always shouting out to the world that this is happening, that this is what we are dealing with. And unfortunately, 56 years of us trying to explain what occupation is all about and what these settler groups are, nobody actually was listening to us. And now it's actually home. And that only confirms this saying that nobody is free until everybody is free. The scary thing that's also going to happen in the future is also affecting the Israeli establishment and the Palestinians, the Israeli security establishment. If you have been following the news, Ben Gvir has constantly been calling for the establishment of militias, private militias that are going to hold weapons in the West Bank and they're going to operate in the West Bank. Itamar Ben-Gavir is an Israeli settler, lawyer, and politician known for his anti-Arab views. He is Minister of National Security in charge of police in Israel's government. That means that the formal IDF is no longer there. Not that they should be there anyway, if we're talking about uh, ending the occupation, but at least they are formal army. Now we're talking about militias and citizens and civilians, and that actually actually takes us to a totally different level of confrontation. If you're looking at the Palestinian general public as well, and especially the young people these days in Palestine, they are becoming increasingly hopeless. They are becoming increasingly visionless, if I might call it. They don't have the vision for any future. And the number of people who are actually supporting a one state is increasing. We were also saying no hope for the two-state solution anymore. And these young people, the frustrated young people right now in Palestine, if you talk to them, they are not bound to the economic ties or paying loans or anything else. And they don't really understand the whole politics and the history of the Palestinian Liberation Organization and the Palestinian Authority and Oslo Accords and everything else. They didn't witness any of all of that. So they just want to know that they can live and they want to live a normal life. And right now, for them, the normal life, the only way to get a normal life is actually through becoming more radicalized, 
because they feel this is the only way they can actually fight back and regain their rights. So we are unfortunately looking at a very dim future. And what happens is in Israel right now, definitely the people who will pay the highest price are the Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza and East Jerusalem, as well as the Palestinians within Israeli citizenship. Thank you so much, Naveen. Nikki, how do you see the Israeli society processes a moment that is unprecedented? Uh, in the Israeli collective psyche um, from your perspective of uh, human rights work? First of all, thank you. I appreciate the fact uh, for you having me here. And of course, it's an extraordinary moment. I think that we were not fully aware when we scheduled this meeting that it would be in such a historic moment. In many ways, it's a very confusing moment. From one hand, we're looking at the most radical, right-wing radical government we've ever seen. That it's not only about talking radically or being racist as as we've been witnessing for many years. We're seeing a level of action we haven't seen for a very uh, long time, both internally within the Israeli 48 borders and when you look at the West Bank, the reality on the ground is actually deteriorating. On the other hand, I want to be able to bring here a, a positive message because I think that what we're witnessing in this moment is a moment of awakening. I think that for many Israeli Jews, it was very easy to be kind of like in between, to try to be apolitical, to try to find the common denominator of, of the Israeli center. And I think that people, things do come clearer. I think that people are in, in a moment that they need to kind of like take sides. So it's not going to be, you know, an immediate change in political discourse, but the connections that people make between the ongoing occupation, the judicial reform, the issues to do with equality for uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel and so on are becoming more clear to a growing group of Israelis. We at the New Israel Fund and, and our colleagues in the human rights community have been actually talking about this, what we call the democratic recession. But now we're not in the moment of democratic recession, meaning it's not slowly changing and, and, and deteriorating. Actually, this extreme moment that may make everything much more clearer to the public are extremely needed if you look at things in the Israeli context, but also if you look at it in, in international context. When things are bright, clear, and open, people just need to make choice. And I think that the, the fact that so many Israelis have been taking the, uh, the streets in the way they did, um, speaking the language of equality and democracy, although you know we don't share exactly the definition of what equality means and what democracy means, but I think that this kind of language doesn't mean kind of a direction. The other thing that I want to share with, with our audience is what is happening in the what we call the anti-occupation space. During this time of protest, the growing number of people who are joining the, what we call the anti-occupation block within the system of, of the protest is something that we've never witnessed in this space for a very, very long time. I'm understanding today, you know, after being in this space for quite a long time, that we were basically blocked from every open discussion space in the Israeli realm of, of civil society or, or, or civil discussion. And this new reality, this new town hall meeting kind of, of a concept where you actually can meet people and you can talk to people or can you hand people's flyers is new and it's opening eyes of many people that were not in the state of mind in which we which have been for a very, very long time. So from one hand, we're seeing very extreme moments. And that's that's a true reality. This is the most extreme right-wing government we've ever seen in the history of the state of Israel. 
which is not only talking, but actually doing. The actions are being held on the ground. On the other hand, the backlash, the rise of, of a new political movement in Israel is a great opportunity for us if we take it and work smartly in order to engage these people. And despite the differences, they see them as partners of ours in the long-term journey towards democracy. This is Understanding Israel-Palestine. You're listening to a discussion with Mickey Gitson of the new Israel Fund in Jerusalem and Naveen Sanduka, a Palestinian who heads an NGO there called Our Rights. They're speaking about Israeli-Palestinian solidarity a day after the Israeli parliament passed a highly contested law curbing the power of the Israeli Supreme Court. Here is moderator Gili Getz of American Friends of Combatants for Peace. Thank you so much, Mickey. I'm wearing the shirt of the looking occupation in the eye, which is the most prominent slogans around the uh, in the occupation block. And I've been there and it's uh, truly extraordinary uh, to see. And we know now there are Palestinian speakers uh, in the anti-occupation block uh, calling for, for a joint struggle. I'd like to uh, ask you a little bit about the challenges and opportunities of this moment about joint struggle that has to be innovated and to some extent, uh, invented because of the kind of segregations of the societies and the politics. But before that, the, the protest movement uh, made an effort, and this is the tension with the anti-occupation bloc, to decouple the occupation and Palestinian rights from this coup. Uh, we, we, there's been an argument inside the, the protest movement about what space should the occupation and Palestinian rights uh, take it, hence the, the slogan, there is no democracy for the occupation. You cannot fight for democracy. Uh, while you know brutally oppressing millions of people, so my question to you is: that space in Israeli consciousness opening up? Are people seeing more of the connections, or those that see the connections end up being more vocal and more present, feel more emboldened to take this uh, position publicly? Uh, and then, if you can touch on joint organizing or joint struggle, the answer here is always it, it's complicated because on one hand. The space for the bloc, the space for the anti-occupy bloc is being much more visible and broaden, broadening itself. And I think that in the, if in the past such bloc would have been part of any protest movement, it would have been pushed away and would be silent uh, by, by the majority of people. And we're actually seeing it growing in, in places and cities, not only in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and, and the large cities, also in towns and cities that we would never expect to see the anti-occupation bloc. The anti-occupation bloc is growing. Are these people who would always support the anti-occupation messages and just came out publicly as supporters of the bloc? It could be, but I think that the fact that people find themselves, I would say, quite comfortably with these messages within the Israeli context is something that we need to take very seriously and to work in order to increase that. People were changing, even just yesterday, where were you in Hawara? Hawara is the Palestinian village that underwent the pogrom by settlers and the police was not there to protect them. And it's for the second time when, when there, there are clashes between police officers and demonstrators, both in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, they choose, those are not people of the anti-occupation bloc, to chant and to scream and to cry, where were you in Hawara? Meaning, how come the police is here violating against us peaceful protesters and not protecting Palestinians' life. So our job is to find the cracks. Our job is, is to try to find spaces in which we can this message. You know, I could have gone and talked a lot about the, the challenges and, and the 
problems with the main protest movement and so on. But actually, one, I, I want to present here a different face of this of this reality. Our job is to actually increase our voice, find partners, cry our message, and do it wherever we can. We believe in change, and the ability to create change is needed in order to do human rights work. And that's also connected to the joint struggle question. It's probably the most difficult time to do a joint struggle, both politically and socially. Societies are not open for it as, as much we, as we would want them to be open for it. You know, the occupation is ugly. The, the disconnect is so clear. The anti-normalization movement is very powerful. And, and there is no space for, for joint work. And I think that carrying this flag of, of joint struggle is, 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 a, is a complicated thing to do. And there is a lot of work that needs to be done also, not on, only in the joint uh, work, but also, you know, nationally in both, you know, both sides, both in the Israeli and Palestinian sides. But I think as my, uh, the same here as I think about general struggle with the fact that it's difficult doesn't mean it's impossible. And if it's not impossible, we must carry on and do it because if we drop it, if we drop the, the need for a joint struggle, if we drop the understanding that the, the communication between people who share values, but also share strategies, it's very easy to, to drop it. The moment we do it, it will be even harder to bring it up to speed uh, to work together. Seeing that every action or every organization, definitely like combatants for peace and others, keep this joint work is, is something that is very, very needed in space that is going actually the other way around. In a vein- the people leading this coup are the same exact people who have been brutalized Palestinians and are kind of a, a product of that base system. Uh, and now it's turning on Israeli Jews. How do you see the potential possibility and definitely the challenges of joint work, uh, given the imbalance of power? So if, if I may just, uh, first of all, just say a couple of things about uh, the things that we just heard from uh, Mike, if I may. So I also talked to many of my Israeli friends who reside in Tel Aviv, who are entrepreneurs, who, you know, who actually see a partner with the Palestinians. And when I talk to them about what is happening and whether they stand and if there is hope or not, at least three of them already told me that they're planning to leave Israel. And I found myself a Palestinian who has been fighting for my whole life against occupation so far, telling them, don't leave, we need you. It's kind of like that contradictory place as a Palestinian where you find yourself in. Don't leave because you are the ones basically that you understand right now what is happening and you're the ones who are actually going to protect us as Palestinians from your own systems that exist. And it's quite a weird schizophrenic situation that Palestinians find themselves in. Um, another incident that just happened is that me and my colleague, we, we needed to take the train two days ago when there were a big, big demonstration in Jerusalem, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. We ended up in a train surrounded by Israeli flags and all these people going to the demonstration and we're in the middle of it, talking Arabic and sometimes speaking in English so that people don't feel afraid, they don't understand what we are talking about. I could understand a little bit of the conversation, for example. So they were talking that we allowed this to happen as Israelis. We allowed this to happen since the 70s because we allowed life in, in Israel to be shut down on the Shabbat. We allowed them to reach where they are today. And this internal discussion was going on and I'm listening very curiously. And then they ask, where are you from? And I'm sad, like I'm Palestinian <laughs> from Jerusalem. 
And the reaction was amazing. They were very welcoming, actually. And my friend is from Hebron. So it was also very welcoming for her. And we started this conversation, whether they have hope or not. And I asked this very same question that you asked Mike a, little, a while ago. is like, do you believe that, you know, there's a link between democracy and what's happening in the West Bank and occupation? And all of them said, yes, there is. There is a link and we see it. But we don't want to talk about it now. Now it's like kind of like let's focus on this. But we do understand that we need afterwards to talk about this issue that is happening in the West Bank. The schizophrenia is that one guy was talking about his daughter who serves in the IDF in Hebron, apparently in the old city of Hebron, where the situation over there is crazy. And he was just saying and concerned that his daughter is serving uh, when she doesn't have many colleagues around her. He wants to add more soldiers in Hebron to protect his daughter. And this is exactly where it stri strikes me. Like you're talking about democracy and you're seeing what these settlers are actually doing and you're fighting with them basically. But at the same time, you, mo you want more soldiers in the West Bank. This still doesn't click from my mind. And then they started talking in Hebrew again. I guess they didn't understand that I knew Hebrew. And they were like, you know, we hope this works and we hope nothing security incident happens. And they were looking at us, you know, like, like we are, again, the terrorists, the Palestinian suspects who want to blow up a train. So <laughs> in the Israeli psychology, this is, this is what I felt as a Palestinian, that you're still hijacked in this security mentality. I think it's really important to... Also look at the internal Palestinian uh, issues that are happening as well. Remembering that the Palestinians also live under our own regime, under our own Palestinian authority. We didn't have elections since 2006. And right now we are also witnessing a lot of internal human rights issues as well within the Palestinian authority. So as a Palestinian, we're looking at this, we do feel detached total detachment from what is happening in Israel and what's happening in the West Bank or Jerusalem, it's like it has been happening for 56 years. So why should we join your struggle? I'm not sure how many Palestinians even make that link when they see the Palestinian flag inside uh, the, the demonstrations. I talk to many Palestinians about this. And I think Palestinians just see this as, as something that doesn't really consider, concern them. It's something that's only for the Israelis. And even when they see the flag, I think they, they think it is Palestinians within Israeli citizenship mostly that hold this flag when it is actually Israelis who is the anti-occupation bloc. And most of them are our members that we support as well. Still, the Palestinians don't make that link. It's really interesting. Yesterday, for example, I was talking to some Israelis and one Israeli friend actually from the audience told me, you know, we can as Israelis, we can raise your flag in the demonstrations. But you, as a Palestinian, if you came to the demonstrations and held the flag, the police will attack you. So I don't know, should I join this struggle or not? Because I'm a Palestinian, I'm still an easy target for the police. I feel the connection. But then there's all these question marks about, is there really a link? And am I an easy target for the police or not? And am I going to be protected or not if I join these uh, demonstrations? Thank you so much, Avin. It's striking to me that Israelis are, are taking extraordinary actions of civil disobedience, mass protests and strikes 
uh, something the Palestinians have been doing uh, for a very long time. We see the different reactions of the authorities, the difference between how police deals with uh, Jewish-Israeli protests versus uh, Palestinian protests. The, 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 uh, even citizens of Israel, the, the differences are, are stark. You've been listening to a discussion sponsored by American Friends of Combatants for Peace on July 25th. The speakers were Naveen Sanduka with the Alliance for Middle East Peace and Our Rights and Mickey Gitson of the New Israel Fund. The moderator was Geely Getz. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not reflect those of the radio station or anyone associated with it. This is Understanding Israel-Palestine. 